Chapters twenty one to twenty three of On the Eve by Ivan Turgenev. Translated by Constance Garnet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty one. Elena's first sensation on awakening was one of happy consternation. Is it possible? Is it possible? she asked herself, and her heart grew faint with happiness. Recollections came rushing on her, she was overwhelmed by them. Then again she was enfolded by the blissful peace of triumph. But in the course of the morning Elena gradually became possessed by a spirit of unrest, and for the remainder of the day she felt listless and weary. It was true she knew now what she wanted, but that made it no easier for her. That never-to-be-forgotten meeting had cast her forever out of the old groove. She was no longer at the same standpoint. She was far away, and yet everything went on about her in its accustomed order. Everything pursued its own course, as though nothing were changed. The old life moved in its old way, reckoning on Elena's interest and cooperation as of old. She tried to begin a letter to Insarov, but that too was a failure. The words came on to paper, either lifeless or false. Her diary she had put an end to, by drawing a thick stroke under the last line. That was the past, and every thought, all her soul, was turned now to the future. Her heart was heavy. To sit with her mother, who suspected nothing, to listen to her, answer her, and talk to her, seemed to Elena something wicked. She felt the presence of a kind of falseness in her. She suffered, though she had nothing to blush for. More than once an almost irresistible desire sprang up in her heart to tell everything without reserve, whatever might come of it afterwards. Why, she thought, did not Dmitri take me away then, from that little chapel, wherever he wanted to go? Didn't he tell me I was his wife before God? What am I here for? She suddenly began to feel shy of everyone, even of Uvar Ivanovitch, who was flourishing his fingers in more perplexity than ever. Now everything about her seemed neither sweet nor friendly, nor even a dream, but, like a nightmare, lay an immovable dead load on her heart, seeming to reproach her and be indignant with her, and not to care to know about her. You are ours in spite of everything, she seemed to hear. Even her poor pets, her ill-used birds and animals, looked at her, so at least she fancied, with suspicion and hostility. She felt conscience-stricken, and ashamed of her feelings. This is my home, after all, she thought, my family, my country. No, it's no longer your country, nor your family, another voice affirmed within her. Terror was overmastering her, and she was vexed with her own feebleness. The trial was only beginning, and she was losing patience already. Was this what she had promised? She did not soon gain control of herself, but a week passed, and then another. Elena became a little calmer, and grew used to her new position. She wrote two little notes to Insarov, and carried them herself to the post. She could not for anything, through shame and through pride, have brought herself to confide in a maid. She was already beginning to expect him in person. But, instead of Insarov, one fine morning Nikolai Artemyevich made his appearance. End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 
No one in the house of the retired lieutenant of guards, Stauhoff, had ever seen him so sour, and at the same time so self-confident and important as on that day. He walked into the drawing-room in his overcoat and hat, with long deliberate stride, stamping with his heels. He approached the looking-glass, and took a long look at himself, shaking his head and biting his lips with imperturbable severity. Anna Vassilyevna met him with obvious agitation and secret delight. She never met him otherwise. He did not even take off his hat, nor greet her, and in silence gave Elena his doe-skin glove to kiss. Anna Vassilyevna began questioning him about the progress of his cure. He made her no reply. Uvar Ivanovitch made his appearance. He glanced at him and said, Bah! He usually behaved cold and haughtily to Uvar Ivanovitch, though he acknowledged in him traces of the true Stahov blood. Almost all Russian families of the nobility are convinced, as is well known, of the existence of exceptional hereditary characteristics peculiar to them alone. We have more than once heard discussions, among ourselves, of the Podzalaskinsky noses and the Pereprevsky necks. Zoya came in, and sat down facing Nikolai Artemyevich. He grunted, sank into an armchair, asked for coffee, and only then took off his hat. Coffee was brought him, he drank a cup, and looking at everybody in turn, he growled, between his teeth, Sort, s'il vous plaît, and turning to his wife, he added, Et vous, madame, restez, je vous prie. They all left the room, except Anna Vassilievna. Her head was trembling with agitation. The solemnity of Nikolai Artemyevich's preparations impressed her. She was expecting something extraordinary. "'What is it?' she cried, directly the door was closed. Nikolai Artemyevich flung an indifferent glance at Anna Vassilievna. "'Nothing special. What a way you have of assuming the air of a victim at once,' he began quite needlessly dropping the corners of his mouth at every word. I only want to forewarn you that we shall have a new guest dining here to-day. Who is it? Kurnatovsky, Yegor Andreevich. You don't know him. The head secretary in the Senate. He is to dine with us to-day? Yes. And it was only to tell me this that you made every one go away? Nikolai Artemyevich again flung a glance this time one of irony, at Anna Vassilievna. Does that surprise you? Defer your surprise a little. He ceased speaking. Anna Vassilievna, too, was silent for a little time. I could have wished, she was beginning. I know you have always looked on me as an immoral man, began Nikolai Artemyevich suddenly. I, muttered Anna Vassilievna, astounded. And very likely you are right. I don't wish to deny that I have in fact sometimes given you just grounds for dissatisfaction. My greys flashed through Anna Vassilievna's head, though you must yourself allow that in the condition, as you are aware, of your constitution. And I make no complaint against you, Nikolai Artemyevich. C'est possible. In any case, I have no intention of justifying myself time will justify me. But I regard it as my duty to prove to you that I understand my duties, 
and know how to care for for the welfare of the family entrusted entrusted to me what's the meaning of all this anna vassilyevna was thinking she could not guess that the preceding evening at the english club a discussion had arisen in a corner of the smoking-room as to the incapacity of russians to make speeches which of us can speak mention any one one of the disputants had exclaimed well stahov for instance had answered the other pointing to nikolai artemyevitch who stood up on the spot almost squealing with delight for instance pursued nikolai artemyevitch my daughter elena don't you consider that the time has come for her to take a decisive step along the path to be married i mean to say all these intellectual and philanthropic pursuits are all very well but only up to a certain point up to a certain age it's time for her to drop her mistiness to get out of the society of all these artists scholars and montenegrins and do like everybody else how am i to understand you asked anna vassilyevna well if you will kindly listen answered nikolai artemyevitch still with the same dropping of the corners of his lips i will tell you plainly without beating about the bush i have made acquaintance i have become intimate with this young man mr kurnatovsky in the hope of having him for a son-in-law i venture to think that when you see him you will not accuse me of partiality or precipitate judgment nikolai artemyevitch was admiring his own eloquence as he talked of excellent education educated in the highest legal college excellent manners thirty-three years old an upper secretary a counsellor and a stanislas cross on his neck you i hope will do me the justice to allow that i do not belong to the number of those pairs de famille who are mad for position but you yourself told me that elena nikolaevna likes practical business men yegor andreyevich is in the first place a business man now on the other side my daughter has a weakness for generous actions so let me tell you that yegor andreyevich directly he had attained the possibility you understand me the possibility of living without privation on his salary at once gave up the yearly income assigned him by his father for the benefit of his brothers who is his father inquired anna vassilyevna his father his father is a man well known in his own line of the highest moral character un vrai stoicien a retired major i think overseer of all the estates of count b ah observed anna vassilyevna ah why ah interposed nikolai artemyevitch can you be infected with prejudice why i said nothing anna vassilyevna was beginning no you said ah however that may be i have thought it well to acquaint you with my way of thinking and i venture to think i venture to hope mr kurnatovsky will be received a bras ouverts he is no montenegrin vagrant of course i need only call vanka the cook and order a few extra dishes you are aware that i will not enter into that said nikolai artemyevitch and he got up put on his hat and whistling he had heard someone say that whistling was only permissible in a country villa and a riding court went out for a stroll in the garden shubin watched him out of the little window of his lodge and in silence put out his tongue at him 
At ten minutes to four a hackney carriage drove up to the steps of the Starov's villa, and a man, still young, of prepossessing appearance, simply and elegantly dressed, stepped out of it and sent up his name. This was Yegor Andreevich Kurnatovsky. This was what, among other things, Elena wrote next day to Insarov. Congratulate me, dear Dmitri. I have a suitor. He dined with us yesterday. Papa made his acquaintance at the English club, I fancy, and invited him. Of course he did not come yesterday as a suitor. But good mamma, to whom papa had made known his hopes, whispered in my ear what this guest was. His name is Yegor Andreevich Kornatovsky. He is upper secretary to the Senate. I will first describe to you his appearance. He is of medium height, shorter than you, and a good figure. His features are regular. He is close-cropped and wears large whiskers. His eyes are rather small, like yours, brown and quick. He has a flat, wide mouth. In his eyes and on his lips there is a perpetual sort of official smile. It seems to be always on duty there. He behaves very simply and speaks precisely, and everything about him is precise. He moves, laughs, and eats as though he were doing a duty. How carefully she has studied him, you are thinking, perhaps, at this minute. Yes, so as to be able to describe him to you. And besides, who wouldn't study her suitor? There's something of iron in him, and dull and empty at the same time, and honest. They say he is really very honest. You, too, are made of iron, but not like this man. At dinner he sat next to me, and facing us sat Shubin. At first the conversation turned on commercial undertakings. They say he is very clever in business matters, and was almost throwing up his government post to take charge of a large manufacturing business. Pity he didn't do it. Then Shubin began to talk about the theatre. Mr. Kornatovsky declared, and, I must confess, without false modesty, that he has no ideas about art. That reminded me of you, but I thought, no, Dmitri and I are ignorant of art, in a very different way, though. This man seemed to mean, I know nothing of it, and it's quite superfluous, still it may be admitted in a well-ordered state. He seems, however, to think very little about Petersburg and comme il faut. He once even called himself one of the proletariat. We are working people, he said. I thought if Dmitri had said that I shouldn't have liked it. But he may talk about himself, he may boast if he likes. With me he is very attentive, but I kept feeling that a very, very condescending superior was talking with me. When he meant to praise any one, he says, So-and-so is a man of principle. That's his favourite word. He seems to be self-confident, hard-working, capable of self-sacrifice. You see, I am impartial. That's to say, sacrificing his own interest. But he is a great despot. It would be woeful to fall into his power. At dinner they began talking about bribes. I know, he said, that in many cases the man who accepts a bribe is not to blame. He cannot do otherwise. Still, if he is found out, he must be punished without mercy. I cried, punish an innocent man. Yes, for the sake of principle. What principle? asked Shubin. Kurnatovsky seemed annoyed or surprised and said, that needs no explanation. Papa, who seems to worship him, put in, of course not, 
and to my vexation the conversation stopped there. In the evening Bersenyev came and got into a terrific argument with him. I have never seen our good Andrei Petrovitch so excited. Mr. Kornatovsky did not at all deny the utility of science, universities, and so on, but still I understood Andrei Petrovitch's indignation. The man looks at it all as a sort of gymnastics. Shubin came up to me after dinner and said, This fellow here and someone else, he could never bring himself to utter your name, are both practical men. But see what a difference. There's the real living ideal given to life, and here there's not even a feeling of duty, simply official honesty, an activity without anything inside it. Shubin is clever, and I remembered his words to tell you, but to my mind there is nothing in common between you. You have faith, and he has not, for a man cannot have faith in himself only. He did not go away till late, but Mamma had time to inform me that he was pleased with me, and Papa is in ecstasies. Did he say, I wonder, that I was a woman of principle? I was almost telling Mamma that I was very sorry, but I had a husband already. Why is it Papa dislikes you so? Mamma, we could soon manage to bring round. Oh, my dear one, I have described this gentleman in such detail to deaden my heartache. I don't live without you. I am constantly seeing you, hearing you. I look forward to seeing you, only not at our house as you intended. Fancy how wretched and ill at ease we should be. But you know where I wrote to you, in that wood. Oh, my dear one, how I love you! End of chapter 22 Chapter 23 Three weeks after Kornatovsky's first visit, Anna Vasilievna, to Elena's great delight, returned to Moscow, to her large wooden house near Prechistenka, a house with columns, white lyres, and wreaths over every window, with an attic, offices, a palisade, a huge green court, a well in the court, and a dog's kennel near the well. Anna Vasilievna had never left her country villa so early, but this year, with the first autumn chills, her face swelled. Nikolai Artemyevich, for his part, having finished his cure, began to want his wife. Besides, Augustina Kristianovna had gone away on a visit to her cousin in Revel. A family of foreigners, known as living statues, des poses plastiques, had come to Moscow, and the description of them in the Moscow Gazette had aroused Anna Vasilievna's liveliest curiosity. In short, to stay longer at the villa seemed inconvenient, and even, in Nikolai Artemyevich's words, incompatible with the fulfilment of his cherished projects. The last fortnight seemed very long to Elena. Kurnatovsky came over twice on Sundays, on other days he was busy. He came really to see Elena, but talked more to Zoya, who was much pleased with him. Das ist ein Mann, she thought to herself, as she looked at his full manly face, and listened to his self-confident, condescending talk. To her mind, no one had such a wonderful voice, no one could pronounce so nicely, I had the honour, or I am most delighted. Insarov did not come to the Stachovs, but Elena saw him once in secret in a little copse by the Moskva River, where she arranged to meet him. They hardly had time to say more than a few words to each other. 
Shubin returned to Moscow with Anna Vassilievna, Bersenev a few days later. Insarov was sitting in his room, and for the third time looking through the letters brought him from Bulgaria by hand. They were afraid to send them by post. He was much disturbed by them. Events were developing rapidly in the East. The occupation of the principalities by Russian troops had thrown all men's minds into a ferment. The storm was growing. Already could be felt the breath of approaching, inevitable war. The fire was kindling all round, and no one could foresee how far it would go, where it would stop. Old wrongs, long-cherished hopes, all were astir again. Insarov's heart throbbed eagerly. His hopes, too, were being realized. But is it not too soon? Will it not be in vain? He thought, tightly clasping his hands. We are not ready, but so be it. I must go. Something rustled lightly at the door. It flew quickly open, and into the room ran Elena. Insarov, all in a tremor, rushed to her, fell on his knees before her, clasped her waist and pressed it close against his head. "'You didn't expect me,' she said, hardly able to draw her breath. She had run quickly up the stairs. "'Dear one, dear one, so this is where you live? I've quickly found you. The daughter of your landlord conducted me. We arrived the day before yesterday. I meant to write to you, but I thought I had better come myself. I have come for a quarter of an hour. Get up, shut the door.' He got up, quickly shut the door, returned to her, and took her by the hands. He could not speak. He was choking with delight. She looked with a smile into his eyes. There was such rapture in them. She felt shy. "'Stay,' she said, fondly taking her hand away from him. "'Let me take off my hat.' She untied the strings of her hat, flung it down, slipped the cape off her shoulders, tidied her hair, and sat down on the little old sofa. Insarov gazed at her without stirring, like one enchanted. "'Sit down,' she said, not lifting her eyes to him, and motioning him to a place beside her. Insarov sat down, not on the sofa, but on the floor at her feet. "'Come, take off my gloves,' she said in an uncertain voice. She felt afraid. He began first to unbutton, and then to draw off one glove. He drew it half off and greedily pressed his lips to the slender soft wrist which was white under it. Elena shuddered and would have pushed him back with the other hand. He began kissing the other hand too. Elena drew it away. He threw back his head. She looked into his face, bent above him, and their lips touched. An instant passed. She broke away, got up, whispered, No, no, and went quickly up to the writing-table. I am mistress here, you know, so you ought not to have any secrets from me, she said, trying to seem at ease and standing with her back to him. What a lot of papers! What are these letters? Insarov knitted his brows. Those letters, he said, getting up, you can read them. Elena turned them over in her hand. There are so many of them, and the writing is so fine, and I have to go directly. Let them be. They're not from a rival, eh? And they're not in Russian, she added, turning over the thin sheets. Insarov came close to her and fondly touched her waist. She turned suddenly to him, smiled brightly at him, and leaned against his shoulder. Those letters are from Bulgaria, Elena. My friends write to me. They want me to come. Now, to them? 
yes now while there is still time while it is still possible to come all at once she flung both arms round his neck you will take me with you yes he pressed her to his heart oh my sweet girl oh my heroine how you said that but isn't it wicked isn't it mad for me a homeless solitary man to drag you with me and out there too she shut his mouth Shh, or i shall be angry and never come to see you again why isn't it all decided all settled between us am i not your wife can a wife be parted from her husband wives don't go to war he said with a half mournful smile oh yes when they can't stay behind and i cannot stay here elena my angel but think i have perhaps to leave moscow in a fortnight i can't think of university lectures or finishing my work what interrupted elena you have to go soon if you like i will stop at once this minute with you for ever and not go home shall i shall we go at once insarov clasped her in his arms with redoubled warmth may god so reward me then he cried if i am doing wrong from to-day we are one for ever am i to stay asked elena no my pure girl no my treasure you shall go back home to-day only keep yourself in readiness this is a matter we can't manage straight off we must plan it out well we want money a passport i have money put in elena eighty roubles well that's not much observed insarov but everything's a help but i can get more i will borrow i will ask mamma no i won't ask mamma for any but i can sell my watch i have earrings too and two bracelets and lace money's not the chief difficulty elena the passport your passport how about that yes how about it is a passport absolutely necessary absolutely elena laughed what a queer idea i remember when i was little a maid of ours ran away she was caught and forgiven and lived with us for a long while but still every one used to call her tatiana the runaway i never thought then that i too might perhaps be a runaway like her elena aren't you ashamed why of course it's better to go with a passport but if we can't we will settle all that later later wait a little said insarov let me look about let me think a little we will talk over everything together thoroughly i too have money elena pushed back the hair that fell on his forehead oh dmitri how glorious it will be for us too to set off together yes said insarov but there when we get there well put in elena and won't it be glorious to die together too but no why should we die we will live we are young how old are you twenty-six yes twenty-six and i am twenty there is plenty of time before us ah you tried to run away from me you did not want a russian's love you bulgarian let me see you trying to escape from me now what would have become of us if i hadn't come to you then elena you know what forced me to go away i know you were in love and you were afraid but surely you must have suspected that you were loved i swear on my honour elena i didn't she gave him a quick unexpected kiss there i love you for that too and good-bye you can't stop longer asked insarov 
no dearest do you think it's easy for me to go out alone the quarter of an hour was over long ago she put on her cape and her hat and you come to us to-morrow evening no the day after to-morrow we shall be constrained and dreary but we can't help that at least we shall see each other good-bye let me go he embraced her for the last time ah take care you have broken my watch-chain oh what a clumsy boy there never mind it's all the better i will go to kuzhetsky bridge and leave it to be mended if i am asked i can say i have been to kuzhetsky bridge she held the door-handle by the way i forgot to tell you Monsieur Kornatovsky will certainly make me an offer in a day or two, but the answer I shall make him will be this. She put the thumb of her left hand to the tip of her nose and flourished the other fingers in the air. Good-bye till we see each other again. Now I know the way, and don't lose any time. Elena opened the door a little, listened, turned round to Insarov, nodded her head, and glided out of the room. For a minute Insarov stood before the closed door, and he too listened. The door downstairs into the court slammed. He went up to the sofa, sat down, and covered his eyes with his hands. Never before had anything like this happened to him. What have I done to deserve such love, he thought. Is it a dream? But the delicate scent of mignonette left by Elena in his poor dark little room told of her visit and with it it seemed that the air was still full of the notes of a young voice and the sound of a light young tread and the warmth and freshness of a young girlish body End of chapter twenty three